Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect Workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from a panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Michelle, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Connect Education Workshop. And today's program is titled, What's New in Diagnostic Technologies for People Living with Solid Cancer Tumors? And this is part one of a two-part series on this topic. And uh, today's program is supported by Estellas US LLC and Foundation Medicine. And I really want to thank them for their support of the program today. Now, we have um, wonderful speakers on our program today, and we also have a lot of participants. We have over 205 participants on the call today. You come from all of the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban areas. And we also have international participants from Canada, India, Iraq, Poland, Saudi Arabia, and the United Kingdom. And today's program is also being done as a partnership with the um, Association for Molecular Pathology, or AMP, and you'll be hearing more from um, one of their staff as we go along in the program, but it's a very important partnership because we are focusing a lot on molecular pathology on this call, and it's just a natural to have them um, partner with us on today's program. Now, before we move on to um, introducing our first speaker, I first want to ask you just a few questions before the program begins. So I want to start by asking a uh, the first question, and the first question is, on a scale of one to five, with one the highest rating and five the lowest rating, please select your rating. I understand the definition of diagnostic technologies and biomarkers, how they work and are used to inform and transform the treatment of solid cancer tumors. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the second question is, I understand how diagnostic technologies and biomarkers help to predict hereditary risk. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. The next question is, I understand the important role of diagnostic technologies, targeted therapies, and precision medicine in the treatment of solid cancer treatments. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And just two questions left now. I understand the benefits of diagnostic technologies and biomarkers in the treatment of solid cancer tumors. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And this will be the final question. I understand the significance of diagnostic technologies in biomarker clinical trials as a, an option for solid tumor cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating.
Okay. Well, I want to thank you all for participating in these questions. It really helps us to get a better picture of what you know coming into the program. Um, it helps us to better plan programs going forward. So thank you all. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Mark Chris. Dr. Chris is William and Joy Rain Chair in Thoracic Oncology, Attending Physician, Thoracic Oncology Service, Department of Medicine, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Professor of Medicine, Weill Cornell Medical College. And Dr. Chris will be addressing a definition of diagnostic technologies for people living with solid cancer tumors in the context of COVID-19, how diagnostic technologies work and are used, for example, in lung cancer, and the increasing role of telehealth, telemedicine appointments. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Chris. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Carolyn. And uh, thank you all for joining us today. Um, I am going to um, try to take a... Um, uh, a kind of a general look at the the topic, and also to focus in uh, on uh, uh, lung cancers in particular, the field that that I work in. Um, you know, I think that the first issue about um, uh, diagnostic testing is the importance of obtaining uh, the diagnosis of, of cancer. And I think all of our activities uh, at the time cancer is suspected focus around. Uh, being 110% sure that cancer is present. So first and foremost, that's what docs uh, need to do, uh, and that's what your healthcare team is going to be talking to you about when cancer is suspected. Once cancer is diagnosed, and I'll talk about how to do that in a second, um, then the question turns to what's the site of origin of the cancer. Uh, for example, a cancer that would appear in the lung does not necessarily start in the lung. Cancer from elsewhere in the body, the breast or the colon, can spread to the lung. Uh, and even though it's in the lung, it doesn't mean it started in the lung. So knowing it started in the lung is absolutely critical. And then within uh, lung cancer, there are certain types of lung cancers, the adenocarcinoma, the squamous carcinoma, the large cell carcinoma that you, you may have heard of, and, and your doc needs to know that. Just a general term, too. I think people still have the, um, the idea that we somehow can diagnose cancer from a scan or we can diagnose cancer from a blood test. And in 2021, we cannot do that. We still require tissue uh, and to have that tissue uh, examined uh, by a pathologist. So um, though cancer may be suspected, uh, you can't be sure there's cancer until a biopsy is done. Uh, and that diagnosis is rendered by a pathologist, a person uh, trained, and we'll hear from one shortly, uh, specifically to make that diagnosis and answer those other questions I talked about. Now, the first two ways that this is done is by a uh, microscopic examination of the uh, tissue, either through a biopsy where a piece of tissue is, is removed. It's also called histology or histologic type of diagnosis. And the other way to do that is to look at the individual cells in a lump of cancer or a tumor. Uh, that can be done also by a biopsy, biopsy with a tiny needle. You might hear the term aspiration biopsy that pulls out individual cells. But also it can be uh, done from uh, fluids in the body. Very often when uh, cancer is present, there can be collections of fluid in the abdomen, termocytes, collection of fluid in the chest, the so-called effusion, pleural effusion. And the cancer cells in those fluids can be examined by a pathologist and the diagnosis of cancer made. But again, the critical thing is the getting a 
material to the pathologist to, to look at, uh, prepare and look at under the microscope. That is absolutely essential. No matter what kind of solid tumor you have, that must be done. And it's super critical to make sure that there's cancer there and to start to answer those other questions. Uh, pathologists can also do uh, other uh, testing on that uh, uh, tumor tissue. Uh, one word you might hear is immunohistochemistry, where they have um, various uh, materials that can find uh, cancer-related proteins in that tissue uh, and use, by use of color, by use of fluorescence, be able to gauge the presence and the amount of that protein. It's very common in uh, the uh, diagnosis with uh, breast cancer, estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor, uh, HER2, uh, uh, a uh, gene product of the HER2 gene, uh, and also with prostate cancer with the PSA, lung cancer with ALK. And a very important one for a lot of different cancers is PDL1. This is a marker on tumor tissues that uh, signifies uh, the likelihood of benefit with our immune therapeutic drugs. In addition to looking at the proteins in these uh, tissues that are removed, uh, the uh, pathologist and the uh, molecular pathologist can also look at the DNA uh, and can also look at, at RNA. Uh, I think we'll have a talking uh, later about the use of an RNA-based test. Oncotype is probably the perhaps the most important and commonly used one uh, that's used to help uh, plan therapy for, for breast cancers. But looking at the DNA looks at uh, both uh, cancer-damaged genes uh, and also, uh, uh, in addition, by analyzing those genes, markers of uh, immune sensitivity. I think Dr. Benson will be talking later about something called MSI, microsatellite instability, that's a critical determinant in helping choose your therapy for, for colorectal and other gastrointestinal cancers. Um, just a, uh, an important note, though, is the genes in the cancer cell in solid tumors are by and large not the ones that are heritable. When, when we're looking for genetic damage here, we're looking for damage in the tumor tissue, and that very rarely translates into genetic damage that can be passed on or is heritable. It's, the word you might hear is somatic mutation, somatic mutation. That's what we're looking for when we look for the DNA. Um, there are very sophisticated tests on how these damaged genes are um, uh, test, uh, looked for and, and, and determined. Uh, and these tests are very, very important because they, when you have a damaged gene, it generally points to a deranged protein, which can lead to a very specific kind of therapy. Uh, precision medicine is sort of based on the ability to find a, uh, a specific kind of genetic damage, which results in the, uh, the occurrence of a specific protein, which can then be targeted is the word that we use with a very precise therapy. We also look at blood. Uh, in the blood, we can measure certain proteins, and good examples of that would be PSA and prostate cancer, CEA, used commonly uh, in, uh, in uh, assessing uh, the progress of treatment of colorectal cancer and one for ovarian cancer, something like CA125. A recent development, however, is looking for cancerous DNA in the bloodstream. Uh, you hear a lot about uh, cell-free DNA, liquid biopsy. That's, that's what we're talking about. Uh, and it can be a very useful adjunct to the testing that we have. 
Uh, one nice thing about it is it obviates the need for an, uh, a biopsy, a separate procedure to do that. And in general, the testing of the blood is, is, is usually uh, a bit faster. It could be one to two weeks instead of the two to four weeks for tissue. It's not a perfect test, however. It, it's simply not as uh, comprehensive or uh, as um, uh, accurate is probably the wrong word, but it doesn't give you the results you need as often as tissue does. I think that's maybe a better way of saying that. So this, is, this test may be recommended to you, um, but we, uh, I think many people have the idea that this is the answer to getting um, a diagnosis, and, and it's part of the answer, but not the complete answer. So in, in the next uh, minute or so, I just want to talk about a few practical things. The first thing is, why are we doing all this testing? It, it is how we decide what's the right therapy for you. We have to know what kind of cancer you have, and the additional testing helps us choose the best therapy. It's very complicated. I've just run through a zillion things here. I've been at this for years. Uh, you folks, it's all new. So please don't be afraid to ask questions about this. Uh, it, it's all new to, to many doctors as well as you and your family, and please ask questions about it. Please know that these tests take time. Uh, we'll talk some more about this in the uh, talks, but blood tests take one to three weeks to look for cancerous DNA. Uh, the tissue takes two to four weeks. Please remember, too, that there's no test, blood, or tissue that's perfect. Sometimes they're not sensitive enough. Uh, there can be a false negative tests, which can happen. Uh, and lastly, there can be a technical failure of these tests. Um, they, they're very complicated to perform. So this testing is not perfect. And uh, lastly, please know that these test results, no matter what they are, are only part of your story. They're only part of the uh, understanding that your doctor and your healthcare team need to come up with your best treatment. It's your medical history, the symptoms that you have, your physical examination, the various imaging tests. All these things need to be put together with the various blood and tissue tests to make the best diagnosis and to choose the best therapy. So please understand that it's not any one thing that gives you the answer. It's each individual test result adds to the, helps fill in another piece of the puzzle, as it were, but your doctors and your healthcare team need to look at the whole puzzle picture to come up with the best therapy. Well, oh, thank you very much, Dr. Chris. That was an outstanding presentation, really set the tone for today's program, uh, really. Um, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you so much. And um, our next uh, speaker is Dr. Al Benson III. Dr. Benson is Professor of Medicine, Associate Director um, for Comparative Groups. Uh, Robert H. Lurie Comprehensive Cancer Center, Northwestern University, and Dr. Benson will be addressing examples of how diagnostic technologies inform and transform the treatment of colorectal cancer and predicting hereditary risk. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, um, Dr., uh, Dr. Benson. Thank you, Dr. Mesner. It's a pleasure to join everyone today. There have been a number of technical advances in the diagnosis and treatment of colorectal cancer, and I'm going to highlight just some of these. First of all, in talking about screening, there's no question there's been a decrease in incidence in colorectal cancer, at least in older individuals, 
and this has been strongly correlated with increased screening. Although colonoscopies remain the gold standard of screening, there have been advances in stool-based screening tests that can be done at your own home and then sent into a laboratory. One is known as FIT, the fecal immunochemical test, which looks for hidden blood in the stool. Uh, another is Cologuard, which can identify abnormal DNA in the stool as well as traces of blood. And there are others uh, also uh, that are commercially available. Um, one of the big areas of research, however, is to try to develop a blood test uh, for screening, which would be much easier and convenient for people. And one concept is for example, looking for circulating tumor cells in the blood, uh, which uh, might indicate a uh, colorectal cancer, as well as looking for tumor DNA in the blood. Um, and I, I'll touch base on this a little bit later uh, when it comes to treatment. Another critical area is advancements in imaging. So one um, really important development is the increased precision of magnetic resonance imaging or MRI imaging for rectal cancer because uh, with this tool, we can now greatly improve our clinical staging, looking at how invasive the rectal cancer is and presence of lymph nodes. And also, it's a, a great tool to determine what is the response after, for example, chemotherapy and radiation? And our ability to measure response is important because now there are some people who may be able to avoid surgery if they get a complete response from their initial treatment. Uh, another critical area uh, in terms of technical development is the use of radiation, particularly for uh, rectal cancer. So, for example, um, because of extensive clinical trial work, we've actually uh, altered the schedule of when we give radiation. Uh, we also have uh, different um, uh, schedule and treatment regimens with radiation, including very abbreviated radiation treatments um, as well as uh, decreasing the dose of radiation. And in some cases, we're able to avoid radiation altogether. In terms of surgery, there also have been substantial developments in uh, the surgical management of patients. Uh, this comes from the use of robotics as well as laparoscopic approaches and, and certainly uh, uh, a great deal of work uh, defining the best surgical techniques for rectal cancer. And what we've also learned uh, is that the very best outcomes come from people who are treated by highly experienced surgeons in this area and at very experienced centers. I want to now uh, touch base on this concept of precision medicine and uh, uh, similar to us, what Dr. Chris has talked about, um, this has certainly changed the landscape in terms of 
uh, how we diagnose and evaluate patients with colorectal cancer. And here, um, it's important to distinguish between genetics um, as such, uh, 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 which describe what you're born with. And this is often referred to germline testing to determine if there are genetic changes which would put you uh, and your family uh, at risk for, in this case, colorectal cancer. But there's also the genetics that we can evaluate within a tumor, and um, uh, these are often referred to as somatic uh, mutations. So this is what can happen when a normal uh, cell, uh, through genetic changes, becomes uh, cancerous. And one of the uh, critical analysis we now routinely do, in fact, this analysis is so important, it is now routinely uh, documented in our pathology reports for colorectal cancer, and this refers to what's uh, called the DNA mismatch repair pathway. We actually have two ways uh, we can measure whether this is important for an individual patient by uh, studying within the tumor what's called uh, microsatellite instability. Uh, another technique uh, refers to uh, mismatch repair and individuals who have deficient mismatch repair. And this is important because it's estimated about at least 15% of colorectal cancer patients have MSI tumors. Of these, there's a smaller group of people who carry an inherited risk. And those are people who need a blood test to determine um, if they uh, uh, have uh, microsatellite instability. And uh, these are also the individuals where immunotherapy can be highly, highly uh, effective. Um, there are uh, other important markers we look for. For example, the RAS mutation, uh, which we can measure in tumors and is in present in, in uh, over 50% of people. And this is important. It's not only a prognostic tool, but it's a potential target for treatment. And for many years, we've not been able to define a treatment for this group of people. But uh, lately, we've identified some subtypes of RAS mutations for which there are now drugs undergoing um, extensive clinical trials currently. We also know if a patient does not have a RAS mutated tumor, they uh, um, are eligible for a targeted therapy either with the drug cetuximab or panitubumab. There are other uh, critical markers we look for which now also have treatment potential. That includes uh, uh, BRAF mutations as well as uh, HER2 uh, expression. And so precision medicine is increasingly important and also important that we identify people who may have uh, an inherited risk for cancer which can affect not only how they are treated, but also affect uh, their families. 
And uh, with that, I'd like to uh, conclude. Uh, there are other techniques such as uh, looking for uh, uh, circulating tumor DNA, which is now extensively being monitored in clinical trials, not only for prognosis, but to help determine which patients should be treated. So uh, thank you, Dr. Mesner, for this opportunity. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Benson. That was really an outstanding presentation and a lot of wonderful information. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. Thank you so much. And our next speaker is Dr. Kamal Abu Hussein, and Dr. Abu Hussein is a lead physician, um, breast medical oncology, MD Anderson, MD Anderson at Cooper Cancer Center. And Dr. Abu Hussein will be addressing how diagnostic technologies, targeted therapies, and precision medicine play a role in determining the treatment for breast cancer, the benefits of clinical trials, how research increases treatment options, and guidelines to prepare for telehealth telemedicine appointments including technology and list of questions. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Abu Hussein. Thank you, Dr. Mesner. I'll try to stay within the eight-minute boundary. Um, so as my uh, two colleagues discussed earlier about precision medicine, um, basically it's an approach to patient care that allows your doctor to be able to select a treatment that is most likely to help patients based on their genetic understanding of their disease. And they also told us the difference between the terms somatic and germline uh, mutations or genes. Uh, some people like to refer to precision medicine as personalized medicine. I think a lot of us heard that term. And the idea of precision medicine is really not new. It is the recent advances in science and research um, and the recent technologies that really helped speed up this whole process in treating patients. Uh, so today, when you're diagnosed with a cancer, a certain type of cancer, our hope is you're not going to get the same exact treatment that another patient has been diagnosed, if they have been diagnosed with the same type of cancer and same stage. We're hoping to be able to tailor the therapy to each patient's tumor-specific features. Um, after a long time of research, I think it took more than decades, now the scientists are, are able to understand that the patient's tumors have genetic changes that cause cancers to grow and spread. And they have also learned that the changes that occur in one person's cancer may not occur in others who have the same type of cancer. And the same cancer-causing changes may be found in different types of cancers. So the hope of precision medicine is that we're able to tailor the treatments, as I mentioned, to the genetic changes in each patient's cancer. And scientists see a future when the genetic tests will be able to help decide which treatment a patient tumor is most likely to respond to, and they could hopefully spare patients untargeted therapies therapies that target the healthy and the cancer cells, like chemotherapy. Um, so patients get offered multiple modalities in treating their cancers, including surgery, chemotherapy, radiation therapy, and immunotherapy. And which treatments you receive usually will depend on the type of cancer, the size of the cancer, 
whether the lymph nodes are involved or not, and whether it has spread or metastasized in your body or not. And with precision medicine, we get information about the genetic changes in your tumor, which helps us to decide on a specific treatment that targets this detected abnormality. So going back to how we're able to detect those genetic changes in patient cancer. The initial step, as Dr. Chris mentioned, is to get a biopsy. So we want to get a sample of the tumor. And this sample will be sent to a special lab uh, where a machine called a DNA sequencer looks for genetic changes that may be causing the cancer to grow. And the process of looking for genetic changes in cancer may be called different things. So you'll hear terms like DNA sequencing or genomic testing, molecular profiling, or tumor profiling. So that leads us to an important issue about clinical trials and the role of clinical trials in precision medicine. So as you might have deducted from everything that we've been talking about, obviously researchers have not yet discovered all the genetic changes that can cause to develop, grow, and spread. Um, but there's certainly a lot of progress. And the progress that is happening in the new discoveries gets presented in every one of the meetings that we go to every several months, our practice changing. And the information that we get from this research is being collected in large databases where the researchers from across the country can access the data and use them in their own studies. Now, this sharing of data helps us move the whole field of precision medicine forward. And once they discover a certain genetic change, another active area of research involves looking for drugs that can target those changes. And then testing these drugs in clinical trials is the next step. So I always tell my patients the following. A clinical trial will always present you with an option that is better or in addition to the standard of care. The goal of the clinical trial is to answer a certain question regarding a certain disease and to eventually improve the outcome so that we're able to manage a certain type of cancer in a better way. So now we have a nice understanding of what precision medicine is. So the drugs that we use to target a certain abnormality or mutation, those are called targeted cancer therapies. And when we identify a specific molecular target that normally causes the cancer to grow and spread, if we're able to develop a therapy that blocks that target, the hope is that we can eventually slow down the growth and limit the spread of the cancer by interfering with those specific molecules. So the targeted cancer therapies are sometimes called molecularly targeted drugs or precision medicine drugs or targeted therapies. And I always tell my patients they are different than your regular chemotherapy in two main aspects. So when chemotherapy is given in the body when we inject it in a patient's bloodstream, basically it looks for any rapidly dividing cells, whether those cells are normal cells or cancer cells. So the side effect profile is a lot more pronounced with chemotherapy. The hope is targeted therapies will be aiming at a specific molecular target and will limit the amount of side effects and will be far more impactful than your regular chemotherapy. And with exception, 
uh, the majority of the targeted therapies are cytostatic, and by that, I mean that they can block the cell proliferation or stop it, put it on a pause, while chemotherapy drugs, a lot of them are cytotoxic. They cause killing of the tumor cells. Um, I wanted to touch base on uh, a couple of the important diagnostic technologies that we use in the field of breast cancer since this is my specialty. Um, two very um, influential tests in my practice that impact decision-making for so many patients are, number one, the Oncotype VX test, and number two, the breast cancer index. Uh, the Oncotype VX test, so just a little bit of background. So the majority of the breast cancer cases in the world are hormone receptor sensitive. That is about three quarters of the cases of breast cancer that we diagnose every year. And thankfully, because most of the patients are so good following their screening guidelines, they get to pick up their cancer early on. And so when we're done with surgery, we're always left with the question of whether would chemotherapy offer any benefit or not? And now we have this test, which is called the Oncotype test, where they take the cancer cells and they try to guess the behavior or try to understand, I tell my patients, the IQ of the cancer cells by testing it against multiple of the genes um, that could predict those behaviors. And that gives us a score. And this score translates into what are the odds of the cancer coming back in the future and what is the benefit in percent percentage from using chemotherapy. When we present patients with numbers that answer those questions, it makes their decisions a lot more easier, and a lot of patients do like numbers to understand the exact benefit they're looking at. So that has really, number one, decreased our use of chemotherapy substantially and also improved our understanding of what kind of benefit we're getting from a certain therapy. The other example is that BCI, or the Breast Cancer Index, and um, this is a test where if anyone knows a breast cancer patient, they know that we prescribe hormonal therapies or endocrine therapies for uh, a period of at least five years. At the end of those five years, we're able to send the exact tumor that was taken at the time of diagnosis and send it for that test, the BCI test. And that tells us whether there's any benefit from a longer period of treatment after 10 years or not. So many patients have been able to stop their hormonal therapy after the first years, the first five years, because we knew that longer treatment will not provide them with any further therapies. Uh, the last thing that I was asked to discuss briefly is telemedicine. So, of course, it's no surprise that a lot of us are using um, Telemedicine these days, we started using it since the beginning of the uh, pandemic in uh, March of last year. And um, there are different softwares and different electronic medical record systems that have different technologies that patients um, use in order to communicate with their doctors. Um, as an example, um, some softwares allow us to dial the patient's number where the patient's number uh, will receive a text with a link that they can have a video chat with their doctors. I personally, there's no hard and fast rules about which patients are appropriate to be seen in telemedicine and which patients should be 
coming into the office for a an in-person visit, but I think it's dependent on what the physician and the patient think is appropriate. It's an agreement between you and your doctor. I, for the most part, if the patient is having a new uh, concerning symptom, I like to see them in person. I like to examine them and be able to lay on them in person. Um, but I think it's totally appropriate for patients who are um, who have been diagnosed for a long time, and this is a follow-up visit with review of lab results or study results and discussion of um, simple problems that could be handled well over the phone. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Mabu Hussein. That was excellent. Um, just a, uh, really a superb presentation and uh, very informative. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and um, our next speaker is uh, Dr. Sarah Kerr. Dr. Kerr is pathologist, um, Hospital Pathology Associates, PA, Division of Cytopathology, Gynecologic and Peri Perinatal Pathology, Molecular Diagnostic Lead, Pathologist for Next Generation Sequencing, Development and Practice, Abbott Health Laboratory, a part of Abbott Northwestern Hospital. And Dr. Kerr will be addressing the role of the pathologist and current application of diagnostic technologies for people living with solid tumors. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Kerr. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you so much for the opportunity to speak to you today. And thank you to the prior speakers for also introducing some of what a pathologist does in the diagnosis of cancer. Uh, as a pathologist, diagnosis and biomarker testing are what I do nearly 100% of my job. Uh, so I, I think of pathology as, as all of the behind-the-scenes work that happens in a clinical laboratory in the practice of medical care. So every time you get blood drawn or a biopsy or surgery, the laboratory handles those specimens from you and performs tests on them. A medical laboratory is made up of actually huge teams of staff who specialize in various kinds of testing, including blood testing, testing for infections, small biopsy evaluation, and the processing of large surgical resection specimens as are produced during major cancer surgeries. Uh, basically, anything that is drawn or removed or sampled from a patient in a medical setting is handled in the pathology laboratory, and a pathologist is the doctor that leads this medical laboratory and is responsible for those test results. Uh, so next I want to talk about how those biopsy and surgery specimens get from a patient to a pathologist for the various tests that are needed for diagnosis and for choosing the best cancer therapy. As the other speakers have explained in different tumor types, patients will often first find out that they have a tumor growing after a screening study, such as a mammogram or on a chest CT scan or, or a colonoscopy, or sometimes cancer is found when the patient is having symptoms. Um, once the tumor is discovered, some sort of minimally invasive biopsy is usually taken if safe to do without a big surgery although some types of cancer, like early-stage ovarian cancer, may go straight to surgery as the safest diagnostic technology. Um, so for most tumors, however, a, a doctor may take a small piece of the tumor by grasping with a forceps 
or inserting a small needle into the tumor with what's called a core biopsy or a fine needle aspiration biopsy. And, you know, the technology is advancing all the time, and, and a variety of clever methods have been devised to get these tiny biopsies. For example, through the skin with image guidance by a radiologist or through a scope inserted in the throat or in the rectum by a gastrointestinal or a lung doctor, um, the tumor can be cancer or it can be something else like an infection. So it is, it is just critical to have a diagnosis by a pathologist by examining this tissue. And really only a pathologist can tell for sure the diagnosis by looking at this tissue under a microscope. So sometimes I actually uh, even go to the room during a biopsy and look at the cells rapidly under a microscope while the patient and biopsy doctor are still in the room uh, so I can tell them whether the biopsy is enough for all of the tests that we need to perform, and that's called an adequacy evaluation or a rapid adequacy evaluation. The material from the biopsy uh, that's taken is then placed either directly onto the glass slides uh, and stained for microscopy, or it's placed into a preservative solution, usually formalin, in a small bottle for further processing. And so after that biopsy, uh, all of the slides and bottles of tissue go to the laboratory. Um, the tissue in those bottles is then processed into a little block of wax and cut into very fine, thin sections that are also placed onto glass slides to look at under the microscope. And this is um, often called formalin-fixed paraffin-embedded processing, or FFPE. The pathologist looks at all of those glass slides that are made under the microscope and then tries to decide what the tumor type is that was biopsied. So uh, if we see cancer in the biopsy, we have to determine the kind of cancer it is. So determining the primary site of the cancer or where the cancer started is the most important first step in determining the best therapy. So the pathologist will determine if the tumor is lung cancer or colon cancer or breast cancer or some other type of cancer. And each type of cancer also has different subtypes and grades. So like you might think of a, a fruit could be classified as an apple and then there's different varieties of apples like Macintosh or Granny Smith. The same is true for different types of, say, lung cancer. So in lung cancer, for example, we subdivide those tumors into different types, including adenocarcinoma, squamous cell carcinoma, small cell carcinoma, or other subtypes. And these specific subtypes of cancer have different approaches to therapy, even without doing molecular testing. Um, and the process of making this initial diagnosis can take you know, a few days, but can take longer depending on if the tumor is common or if it's an unusual or rare type. And then after that diagnosis, these days molecular testing is usually started, and that can take an additional, you know, one to two weeks or, or more depending on how complicated that is, additional testing is. And so um, after all of this work in the laboratory, a cancer patient and their doctors will receive a diagnostic report from the pathologist containing the final diagnosis for the tumor. The diagnosis is based on the appearance of the tumor under a microscope, in addition to special types of stains, as you heard previously, immunostains often, that we do on the tumor tissue looking at proteins that are produced by the tumor. And the pathology report has multiple components. 
So the final diagnosis is one component. Uh, there may also be a comment about the diagnosis to explain anything difficult or unusual about the case. Uh, there's often a description of the way the sample looked when it was received or how it looked under the microscope. And then the results of any special studies that were done to help make the diagnosis will also be recorded. And eventually, um, as you have heard from prior speakers, molecular testing such as next generation sequencing or special stains for proteins may be done to further refine which therapies may work best for the tumor based on what mutations the tumor has or other molecular characteristics of the tumor. Now, I know these pathology reports can be difficult to understand without a medical background. We use very technical language, um, so be sure to go over them with your cancer team. Um, they will often have already discussed the results directly with the pathologist or at a conference discussing your case in conjunction with a team of oncologists surgeons, radiologists, and pathologists, which they might call it tumor board. Um, there are a few pathology organizations also that have information online to help you understand your pathology or molecular report, and our next speaker will actually be telling you about one of the great websites that they have for this from the Association for Molecular Pathology, so stay in tune for that. Um, I encourage you, and this is a real takeaway message from me, to keep a copy either on paper or uh, electronically of all your pathology and molecular reports to help your doctors understand your medical history, especially if you go to a different system or you're being seen by doctors in different systems for second opinions. Um, that diagnosis could even be really important years down the road, um, you know, and you might not remember exactly all of the details. And so having your old pathology reports available can really help your future doctors immensely if you have a new health concern. So for example, you know, if I'm looking at a biopsy of a lung nodule, and I know the patient had, say, a remote history of a certain type of breast cancer, that information saves me just a lot of time and a lot of money, and it really helps me to understand what I'm looking at under the microscope better um, if I know what the prior pathology report was. And so that's all I have for today. Uh, thanks so much for listening, listening to me talk about the importance of diagnostic pathology, and I'm turning the conference back over to Dr. Mesner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Kerr. You know, you make the complex so understandable, and I really appreciate that. Um, Dr. Dr. Kerr is kind of a go-to pathologist on all of our programs, and we need a pathologist, and um, so thank you. And I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. And our next speaker is uh, is Dr. Sarah Thibault. Senet and Dr. Um, Thibault Senet will is senior manager of public policy and advocacy association for molecular pathology or AMP, and AMP is just a wonderful organization. They are a partner organization on today's program because we are focusing so much on pathology. And um, so I'm going to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, uh, Dr. Thibault um, Senet, and she will be addressing the free programs and services of the Association for Molecular Pathology, or AMP, and giving you their phone number and website as well. So it's my great pleasure to turn this over to my esteemed colleague. Hello. Thank you for that wonderful introduction, and thank you all for attending today. I'm going to give a little background on the Association <coughs> Sorry, for Molecular Pathology, or AMP. 
We're a professional and medical society that represents molecular professionals. These are specialized doctors and qualified doctoral scientists who design, perform, and interpret molecular diagnostic tests. While our members perform testing for many different aspects of healthcare, including COVID-19 diagnostic testing most recently, they're highly involved in molecular testing for cancer. As, this, as discussed in such great detail today already, they perform biomarker testing to help guide the best treatment plan for patients and help determine a patient's prognosis, in addition to molecular testing to determine a person's risk of developing various types of cancer. AMP is highly involved in patient care by producing clinical guidelines and other educational materials for pathologists and ordering physicians. In addition to our heavy advocacy to help improve insurance coverage of these crucial tests, AMP has also become closely involved with the patient advocacy community and launched the first version of our patient-facing website that provides an overview of what occurs in a molecular diagnostics laboratory, in addition to descriptions of types of molecular tests, such as DNA sequencing, frequently asked questions, free infographics, and frequently updated educational resources. You can find our website at outreach, that's O-U-T-R-E-A-C-H dot A-M-P dot O-R-G. We invite you to look it over and please feel free to contact us with any additional suggestions. Thank you all again for attending today. Oh, thank you so much, um, Dr. Thibault um, Sennett. Um, that was an excellent presentation and just a wonderful resource for all of you. And at the end of today's program, you'll all be receiving, or probably by tomorrow, you'll be receiving a SurveyMonkey evaluation of the program. And in that, um, we do like you to fill out the evaluation. But in addition to that, we will be including all the links and information that we provided so you'll be able to have it yourself um, utilized. So thank you. Uh, and I'm just going to say a few words about Cancer Care Services. Um, um, I'm Carolyn Messner. I'm Director of Education and Training with Cancer Care. And Cancer Care is a national organization. We provide uh, support services to people throughout the United States. And just to go over those services with you, um, many people call our HOPE line. Um, we have a designated line that people call. Um, it's on all your materials that you receive from us. And um, you can contact us um, or you can visit our website either, either way. And an oncology social worker will address your question or concern. So many people call us um, and we've actually um, increased the number of uh, oncology social workers during this time. Uh, we have about 35 now oncology social workers really because of the increasing need um, of people calling us related, in, in many ways related to COVID-related issues <clears throat> and the issues that people are confronting. So we offer support on the telephone. We offer practical and financial and co-payment assistance, and we also have COVID-specific funds. Um, we also offer online support groups and case management services, uh, really a way of getting you the services that you need that we may not be able to provide and really linking you to those resources, whether they be in your in your city or town or region or, um, or na other national organizations. <clears throat> and we also offer these workshops. We do about 75 of them per year, and we also have publications. So it's a thumbnail sketch of the services you can access from Cancer Care. Now, before we move on to the Q&A, um, we do want to just ask you um, a few questions at the very end of the program. So I'm going to ask you to um, 
to answer the, um, these few questions, and then we'll move right on to the Q&A. So our first question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater knowledge of the definition of technologies and biomarkers, how they work and are used to inform and transform the treatment of solid cancer tumors. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of how diagnostic technologies and biomarkers help to predict hereditary risk. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the important role of diagnostic technologies, targeted therapies, and precision medicine in the treatment of solid cancer tumors, treatments, um, in the treatment of solid cancer treatments. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two questions left. The next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the benefits of diagnostic technologies and biomarkers in the treatment of solid cancer tumors. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And this is the last question now. As a result of this workshop, I have greater confidence in participating in diagnostic technologies and biomarker clinical trials for solid cancer tumors. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. I want to thank you all for participating in, in these uh, questions. It helps us to, as we move forward to plan better programs to meet your needs, so it really is helpful to us and, uh, and to all of you as well. And now we have time for questions. I'm going to ask Michelle to bring all of our speakers on board, and we're going to take as many of your questions as possible, and Michelle will tell you how to queue up for online questions. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. If you wish to ask a question, please press star, then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, please press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. We have a question from our online participants, um, and this will be for Dr. Abu Hussein. Can Marcus check for recurrence of cancer? Um, this is a very good question. So basically when we are uh, following patients up, um, it depends on what stage of cancer they were diagnosed in initially. So for early stage breast cancer where we are treating them with the goal of achieving cure, uh, normally we would do, um, we would start them on hormonal therapy or chemotherapy and continue to see them periodically every few months with a physical exam and checking any new symptoms that would normally tell us if there is a need to obtain any testing, whether it is imaging studies or um, more, um, more focused lab work to detect that. Um, 
in the metastatic setting, we certainly follow something called tumor markers, which are lab tests that in some patients, they mirror the behavior of the cancer and they are quite helpful to tell us if the cancer is sort of behaving itself or it's starting to act up and lack uh, response to the current therapy. But in the early stage cancer, we don't do, um, we don't use tumor markers. Excellent. Thank you. And um, for Dr. Benson, um, a question from one of our online participants. My father has colorectal cancer. Um, can you um, describe how biomarkers may monitor for recurrence? So uh, our current strategy for someone, for example, who's had successful surgery but is at risk for recurrence, um, the one uh, marker we most typically use is called the CEA blood marker. Not every colorectal tumor will produce CEA, but many do, and it may be the first indication that a uh, tumor has recurred. Um, I mentioned briefly this idea of looking at uh, circulating tumor DNA, and uh, this uh, already has shown that it may be a very powerful tool to denote uh, recurrence. And so there are ongoing clinical trials to help confirm this. And if these uh, data are confirmed, I expect it will enter into routine standard of care. Awesome. Thank you. And for Dr. Chris, um, can markers change over time? Um, some can, uh, but particularly the DNA markers, they, they don't change over time. Um, they're very, uh, if you find them, they persist. Um, one thing that can happen in lung cancer is that you get additional markers. Uh, cancers are sneaky beasts, and they find a way to grow uh, despite effective therapies, and one way they, to, they do that is to get additional mutations, uh, and you can detect those additional mutations by another biopsy or uh, looking for the DNA in the blood with a liquid biopsy. So just a, just one word, if, if uh, your cancer is growing again, you may very well hear from your uh, doctor that you need another biopsy or you need another blood test, uh, and that information can be very helpful in choosing uh, a better treatment for you. And um, another question, um, so this is a question actually um, for um, for Dr. Benson. Can I do the virtual doctor's appointment on the phone only? Is there a good way to do tests without going to the hospital? Well, uh, I think, uh, as we heard on this call, telemedicine does have a role, and we have been using this, and we, we expect uh, we will be using such in the future. However, um, uh, people will still need their blood tests, and they'll need their scans. And uh, one area of great concern during COVID is that many people were avoiding uh, not only screening, but obtaining um, uh, routine tests, for example, during surveillance. So uh, this is uh, 
an important area to discuss with each person's clinician to see when telemedicine is important. Uh, I have had people, for example, who've gotten their blood tests at their local hospital, then I have those available and can have a uh, uh, telemedicine visit which accomplishes our goals. But that is not always the case, and so that needs to be discussed with your healthcare team. And there may be times some visits can be telemedicine, but some will have to be in person. Excellent, thank you. And um, a question for Dr. Kerr. Um, what are epigenetic biomarkers? Oh, wow. Well, epigenetic biomarkers are, are sometimes simple and sometimes complex and probably a lot to discuss in a short period of time. But, uh, for example, um, in patients who have tumors with mismatch repair deficiency, some of those tumors are driven by what's called hypermethylation. Um, hypermethylation is a form of epigenetic change in the tumor um, that can cause downstream effects. So uh, in some tumors with mismatch repair deficiency, um, those are driven by a methylation phenotype that we can detect using a pretty simple test looking for hypermethylation of a certain gene promoter. So it's, it's a really it's a really detailed discussion, um, but usually what we're talking about are things like methylation that can drive downstream uh, tumor phenotypes. Excellent. Thank you. And that's a good question to ask your healthcare team. And I guess um, it's possible that um, uh, the Association for Molecular Pathology may also have information about that on their website. Is that, is that possible? Um, uh, Dr. Thibault, um, Senate, is that something that they might be able to find on their website as well, on your website as well? We definitely have some materials on that, but it's probably more at the provider education level. Okay, that is excellent. something, as we continue to grow out our patient-facing website, that is definitely a topic that we do look to develop educational materials on. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess check back in the future. So we do want you to take these questions back to your healthcare team. That's really excellent. I, I want to thank um, all of you today. Um, this has been a remarkable program. Our speakers have been phenomenal, I have to say. We could go on for at least another hour with questions. And I also want to thank our participants for asking really such thoughtful questions. Um, and uh, uh, I just want to thank you all for just making this um, so special. And so I I do want to address the fact that I realize everyone has not had a chance to ask a question. So let me just do that um, at this point. So if you asked a question, if you had a question that you wanted to ask but couldn't ask it, just didn't have time, or if you actually thought of a question that you weren't going to ask because of the program today, we would ask you to take all three of those and go back to your treating healthcare team. Even if you asked a question, they actually, of course, your healthcare team knows everything about you, and so they would be able to address your question. You could either do it as a part of a visit, or you can ask for a telehealth telemedicine visit. You can actually really talk with them about the specific questions you may have um, that you really wanted to ask today that really might take a bit of time, or let them know that you have some questions when you see them. Um, that would be something between you and your healthcare provider. Um, um, also, um, we really prefer that no one leaves this call feeling you're alone. 
it is true that it is normal to feel alone um, when one is coping with cancer and also because of COVID, people are feeling a little bit more alone. Um, so I think that um, with some of the different regulations in different areas of the country. And so I would say that um, although you may be alone in many ways, we want you to know that you're now part of a really large support of resources of there for you, including your healthcare team. And definitely check with your healthcare team about evenings and weekend availability and holiday availability, because those are the times when it seems that things always happen to people. So during, and also during the day, how do you reach somebody? So you really want to get those numbers and information available for you. In addition, um, though, I think that we're going to give you a listing of resources, some of whom, some of those resources have 24-hour day call centers, some of them have call centers during business hours. Um, um, and depending on what part of the country they're in. Um, and I think we will give that information to you. And also, of course, websites for our international participants that you can email um, and, get an, and get help with your questions. Um, again, I want to thank you all for your participation today. Um, you've been a phenomenal group, and um, we hope you've gathered information that you can use to your benefit in your, in your own care and treatment. And I want to thank you all for your participation today and wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.